Hey, everybody, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Tanner. I'll be one of your hosts today. First, we just want to thank you for all the listens, all the downloads, all the supports, all the interactions on social media, all that stuff. We love doing all that stuff. We love seeing all of that stuff. So thank you for all of that. You know, in terms of social media, we can be reached on Twitter at Beyond underscore Breakers. Uh, we're on Instagram at Beyond the Breakers Podcast. Our email, beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. We do have a Facebook that doesn't really have much action on it, and it might be going away soon. Uh, and then we are on Patreon also. That's patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. Uh, we'll keep the show ad-free. We always want to keep it ad-free. Those are the shows that we like to listen to. That's the kind of show we like to make. Uh, money from the Patreon just goes back into making the show a little bit better. So that covers things like web hosting fees for the episodes, research material, when we that's something that we need to pay for. Uh, recording equipment. Actually, this episode, the keen-eared have, have maybe noticed a different audio quality. We, we've both upgraded our microphones for this episode, and we have our patrons to thank for that. Uh, so we hope that has some benefit to the show overall. Um, so yeah, thank you again for that. Uh, last thing I'll mention here at the beginning is ratings and reviews. So if you listen to the show on an app or a website that lets you leave a review or leave a, a five-star rating, please do that if you've got a, got a minute or two. It really helps the show stay visible, helps other people find the show, makes us feel good overall when we see that stuff. So it's a general positive uh, if you have the time to do that. Um, with all of that, let's just bring in Taylor here. Taylor, how's it going? It is going pretty good. I'm glad to be back doing it. It feels like it's been forever since I've recorded an episode after being on vacation and everything last week. It's been a while since we've just like sat down and recorded a new episode. We had a couple weeks where we either just did the bonus or we released an old bonus uh, for everyone. And then we had our guest appearance from Kaylee last week. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's been it was a lot while. of fun. It was a lot of fun listening to that one. It was fun listening to an episode kind of as a fan actually since mm -hmm. i wasn't involved in recording that one it was uh it was great you guys did a great job it was fun yeah it was great and it's within shouting distance of beating the kursk for most downloads in a week yeah so, yep, it's off to a great start yeah that was really fun so it's good to be back here today today we're going to be starting a conversation about a very big name wreck that many many of our listeners have requested or you know have have expressed interest in hearing about this might um, be the most requested one probably think, actually like i've I, a lot of we've gotten quite a few messages about this one also kind of makes it the most challenging one of the most difficult to sort of see you know, how how do we cover this something that has been covered so right. thoroughly it's got documentaries it's got all kinds of stuff it's got you know other podcasts have covered this on episodes so that that really is a challenge here of how to cover it in a way that fits sort of what we do on the show. Mm -hmm. And I think we, I think we've done a good job of that. So I'm excited to share our, sure. uh, our episode. This will be a two part episode, just a, I guess a, a warning. Uh, you're not going to hear the whole story on this episode. We're going to record this in two parts. One will be this week. And then next week we'll get to the finale, you know, just with this well-known of a wreck, uh, there's so many resources accessible, so many of those are in English. That obviously cuts down on the research time. Mm -hmm. um, we just want to make sure it receives thorough coverage. And dividing up the episode like this is the only way we really feel we could cover it in any sort of adequate way. Um, you know, we we did a two-part 
episode on the Noronic. Um, and I feel like if that one got a two-parter, this one probably should too. Yeah, it was pretty early on. We're like, yeah, this this has to be two parts. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So one thing I'll say, I guess we should do our media check-in that we always do. I think I sure. skipped over that in the notes, but uh, what have you been up to? What have you been listening to or viewing? Other than college basketball, which has taken over, which mm-hmm. go Carolina. It's fun, mm-hmm. fun watching that. Um, I've gotten into What We Do in the Shadows TV show. Great uh, choice. Like, I think I think we talked you, about this in a previous episode that you should watch that. Yeah, um, I think you kind of, you and um, a couple other people had told me to watch it, and I finally did. And it's great. If you like uh, horror comedy, it's it's an excellent TV show. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, what about you? I've been doing a little bit of reading, a, a little bit of my normal stuff. Uh, one thing I did want to mention, I guess instead of media I've been consuming is a organization that I've started wanting to get involved with and uh, mm-hmm. started sort of making plans to um, to help out with. Wisconsin Books to Prisoners is an organization that sort of what it says on the label gets books to people who may not have access to them. Otherwise, um, you know, our prison system, obviously not renowned for the variety of books available to uh, to people who are in it. Um, you know, prison libraries exist, but they're probably not always getting enough attention uh, as mm-hmm. they should. And it it occurred to me the other day as, as something to look into, um, and Wisconsin has a program for it. I think most states do have a program for it or a similar program. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're out there and you I don't know want to want to help somebody out, that's something to look into. If you're also a you know a reader like we are, that's a good way to to help somebody out. You know, we in the United States we have the most incarcerated nation on the planet. We put more of our people in jail than anyone else. And right. uh, yeah, why not help out a little bit if uh, if you've got some books that either you, you, you're you not going to read again or you, you think that, hey, someone could really benefit from this. See if you've got one of these programs in your local area. Um, yeah, for sure. So yeah, that's, that is something that some of the Patreon money will be going to. And obviously, shipping costs are a thing. Uh, so once we've got you know a box or two loaded up, we'll be shipping those out to uh, to Wisconsin Books for Prisoners. Cool. Um, yeah. So that's that's something I've been looking at, kind of doing some runs through our collection to see um, what I can donate. Just a note: if you are considering donating books to a similar program, please make sure they're all paperback, no <laughs> hardbacks. That is a pretty across the board requirement. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that's just something I wanted to mention on the show uh, as as just kind of a I don't know, a, a cool, interesting thing to maybe help some people out. So that's that. Aside from that, we've been we've been watching The Great. Still, it, it takes us longer to watch series, I feel like, than it used to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we maybe watch one episode a week, kind of like back in the old days when that's like all you would get. Right. The normal way people watch TV. Yeah. So we uh, kind of uh, falling back into tradition there. But that's that's good. I I, I really like the show. I think I've mentioned it on our show before, but The Great, it definitely takes a more sort of comedic spin on things, but there's also moments of drama that are kind of all the more powerful because of the levity of a lot of the mm-hmm. show. Right. Um, it'll kind of turn around and kind of surprise you with something really, really heavy. So I really like it, really enjoy it, and I'm looking forward to the uh, the finale of that. Nice. So, so, here we are. Let's talk about another finale. All right, so... I don't think we actually mentioned it by name in the yeah, introduction. 
Uh, we've alluded to it on social media. I think some people who either recognized it or, or knew what we were talking about, which is probably a good amount of the shipwreck enthusiast community, right? knows what we're going to talk about. We are going to be talking about the cruise ferry Estonia. It's a big one. This is one, obviously, that's sort of been on our plate since the beginning. I think when we when we started this, this was probably the only you know, more or less modern shipwreck I would have been able to name, mm-hmm. you know, before we did this. I I didn't know about El Faro. I didn't know about, was it the Derbyshire? Yeah. S- some of those more modern ones I, I wouldn't have known about. But this one, because it comes up in so many contexts, you know, it comes up in the engineering disaster context because of some of the details, you know, well, well there's your problem, did an episode about it. That may have been the first time I learned about it. But mm-hmm. um but yeah this is this is a big one so we wanted to put some time into it for sure. So let's get into some background about Estonia. She does not begin her life under the name Estonia however. Mm-hmm. Um so she was a row row cruise ferry built in 1980 by Meierwerft shipyard in Poppenburg West Germany. Okay. So we hear the two cruelest syllables in the English language row row um here so we know we're gonna have a bad time probably and at this point you know we we probably also know why we we probably know what the issue is going to be but we'll get there in good time so her original name was viking sally okay it's kind of fun it'd be like the the wife of the minnesota vikings mascot (laughs) what's his name like olaf i don't know does does he have a name is he named He probably has a name. I'm Sven. guessing he has a name. But anyway, Viking Sally. Uh, she was operated by the Finnish shipping company. Mm. <laughs> That's a name. Red. Redderi Aktibolaget Sally. Tell us that we're wrong. <laughs> so our Finnish listeners, if we've got Finnish listeners, that's awesome. First of all, tell us, I don't know, tell us how to say that. Record a short clip of you and, and email it to us. Anyway. So her original routes took her between the Finnish cities of Turku and Marihamn, and also to Stockholm in Sweden. Cool. So I'll talk a little bit about the geography of the area here in a bit. Uh, So this company, which I'm just not going to try to say again, the short version of it that I saw was just Rideri Ab Sally. So that's that's the same company. Uh, It's just a much shorter version of it. Uh, so this company was one of three that combined to form Viking Line. Like the River Cruise people? I thought it was the same company. So when I was doing my original reading, I thought maybe it was the same company. And it is not the same company. Okay, uh, that makes uh, sense. Because they advertise really aggressively, and it doesn't seem like it would be the same. Right, yeah. the the If you haven't seen the commercials, the, the Viking River Cruises, they're absolutely not the same company as this Viking Lines for these um these Baltic Sea Ferries. The first reason I found that out is because I, I googled Viking Cruises, the river cruise company, mm-hmm. and do you know where they're headquartered? Mm, is it somewhere it, surprising? It's a really dumb place to be headquartered. Where? Basel, Switzerland. <laughs> That's, I'm sure there's tax implications. I feel like for a maritime company, it's a really dumb place to be registered. I realize that Switzerland does have like rivers and lakes and stuff, but still, it is it's weird. stupid to be in a landlocked country. We will get into some more stupid registration and company stuff later, though. As we're talking here, not the River Cruises 
uh, that have the cool commercials on television. This is a they make those rivers look really fun. A different Viking line. Well, the Vikings had some fun on those rivers, <laughs> I'd say. So as we mentioned, she was built in uh, in 1980. She operated for you know that decade as the uh, as Viking Sally. In April 1990, she took the name Celia Star after some shuffles in ownership of the vessel. There's some restructuring. There's companies acquiring other companies. Stuff mm-hmm. like we've seen before. It's just a lot harder to parse through because it's happening in Northern Europe, and I just know less about the structure of everything there. Right. So we'll skip over it. It's not really relevant to our episode. Uh, But it is all detailed in the main report that I'm quoting from, if that's the kind of thing that interests you. She continued on her routes from Turku to Stockholm. Nothing really changed about her operation. So now we kind of may need to reorient or orient ourselves for the first time with uh, Baltic geography, since we were there for the episode on Rusalka. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked about a, a relatively small part of this region. So when we talked about Rusalka, Rusalka was traveling between Tallinn, Estonia, which was called Reval at the time. It was traveling between Tallinn and Helsinki in Finland, which is just almost directly north, just kind of a straight shot across the Gulf of Finland. Mm -hmm. That, as we saw, was a pretty short trip, really highlighting the unseaworthiness of Rusalka in that she couldn't even make it this far. Across the the Gulf, basically. Uh, Yeah, across a, a pretty short span of open water. So we're dealing with kind of a bigger area today. Turku, Finland, is located west of Helsinki. It's it's close to the southwest tip of Finland. So if you look mm-hmm. at Finland on a map, you look at that southwest bit that sticks into the Baltic Sea, Turku is right there. Turku is actually a really cool city historically. It used to be the capital of Finland before that was moved to Helsinki. Interesting. By the Russians, I believe. Of course. Um, those Russians always trying to... Move capitals. Move capitals and redraw borders and all that stuff. Uh, So sailing west-southwest from Turku brings you to the Oland Islands. The city that I briefly mentioned, Marihamn, is the capital of the Oland Islands. Mm -hmm. They're an interesting place, too. They're basically ethnically and linguistically Swedish, but they're administered by Finland in kind of like an autonomous zone. Interesting. Interesting place. So from here, you continue southwest. That gets you to Stockholm. Basically, this whole trip from Turku to Stockholm is crossing the Baltic Sea, across the mouth of the Gulf of Bothnia. Uh, Mm. The Gulf of Bothnia is that big-ish piece of water that sticks up between Sweden and Finland. So you're crossing the mouth of that gulf here. Okay. So now that we're acclimated to some of the geography here uh, that we'll be operating in, we can sort of continue on with our story. After less than a year... As Celia Star, the ship was transferred to Vasa Line, and it was renamed Vasa King, operating now on a route between Vasa, Finland, and the cities of Umea and Sundsvall in Sweden. Sweden. <laughs> so these cities form a triangle that's about halfway up the Gulf of Bothnia. So it's kind of a different route, finally, that she's running. Instead of just right. this one straight across, she's making kind of this triangle run. Also interesting here, she started as Viking Sally. Now she's Vasa King. So some gender fluidity there, which is cool. Yeah, that is interesting. This was the route that she would run until 1993, uh, when she was sold to the company that most listeners probably associate with this story, Estline Marine Company Limited. So if you Google a picture of Estonia, the first thing you see plastered across the side is Estline. This acquisition by Estline, it also came with another name change yet again 
Sadly, this is the one that would become so infamous in maritime history, Estonia. And this is also the first time she'd be operated by a non-Finnish company. Interesting. So she's going international now. She was registered in Cyprus for, from what I can tell, were like European banking regulation reasons. Yeah, I'm sure there's some money involved somehow, some way. I was actually thinking about this. This could be a decent bonus episode thing, is just to talk about some of the ridiculousness of ship registration. That would be a great bonus episode. Because there's a, there's a lot of really crazy ones I've seen. But hey, at least Cyprus is a maritime accessible nation. It's not right. landlocked it's like not Switzerland. Switzerland. So registered in, in Cyprus for whatever, those financial reasons, but also received parallel registration in Estonia. So I guess sort of having your cake and eating it too. <laughs> it sounds like it. Sounds like they figured out how to do it. Yeah. Uh, so an interesting note from the full report is about the development of the Baltic Ferry Shipping Companies from the 1960s to the 1990s. So we'll get into some details about these ships in, in a few minutes here. Talking about that industry in general. So, quote, Roro ferry traffic between southwest Finland and the Stockholm region in Sweden developed extraordinarily fast regarding number of ships built for the trade, their increase in size, capacity, and comfort, and the number of passengers and vehicles carried. So this report points out that one major factor in the speed of development was the competition between Viking Line and Celia Line, uh, the two sort of big players in this, both of which actually would own Estonia at some point in some capacity during her career. I'm getting kind of like White Star versus Keenard Line vibes. Like yeah, it would push each other a little that's, bit. That's probably a good comparison. I, any any situation where you've got you know two big competitors, you're going to see a lot of growth because they're trying to outdo the other one. Quoting again, in several respects, it probably progressed faster than international regulations and the classification societies could accommodate. Well, that's it's always great when industry outpaces regulation. Nothing bad will ever happen. Right. Because companies self-regulate, and they do it very well, and no problems ever occur from that. Mm -hmm. Moving to talk about some of these ships that were employed in this Baltic ferry passenger economy. Early ships used in the Baltic passenger ferry trade were often converted from other types of vessels. You know, you didn't have the purpose-built things for it because that industry didn't exist. So things like railway ferries, you know, similar to what you might need, ships that were typically used for coastal routes could you know were kind of being pressed into service in some of these longer routes across more open water funny quote here passenger comfort was not considered important since the voyages lasted only a few hours it's very like a very practical like way of looking at it but also kind of true i mean if it's only like a, a four or five hour voyage like do you need like a full service restaurant and a casino right. and all these things but also, it becomes a revenue source at a certain point, I imagine, well, that's the for thing. these companies. Yeah, exactly. We, we just talked about how that competition is what's driving the growth, sometimes too fast, of these things. You know, if, if you've both got these sort of crappy converted ferries, well, what if I slap a restaurant onto mine? Mm -hmm. It's like, now I take all the passengers and then you need something to outdo me. It's um, like, oh, I can, I can have a beer while I'm on the ferry? Great, I'll do that. You know what I mean? It's, it's that yeah. kind of thing. I can watch Morbius while I'm traveling to Stockholm. <laughs> in 1961, the first purpose-built Roro vessel was launched to participate in this growing Baltic ferry economy. This was the Scandia, capable of carrying a thousand passengers, and she was outfitted with a full-size car deck and loading ramps at both the bow and the stern. 
So going into the episode, I hadn't really considered the idea that a ship like this, you know, a Roro ferry, might have loading ramps at both ends. It's just like tempting fate too much. It never really occurred to me. Like obviously, it makes sense if you got like a you know something like a, a longer vehicle. You know, you got like a truck or something. It's probably much easier just to run it all the way through rather than trying to turn it around or back it out. Right. So anyway, most of these, possibly all of them, I just want to avoid using the word all whenever possible. But most of them had both bow and stern ramps. Interesting. The bow ramps in particular are going to play a big role. The stern ramps are not particularly interesting. Nothing really happens with them that I've come across. But the bow, very, very, very important. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, A lot of pressure, a lot of uh, Mm -hmm. force being applied to those. Yes. Scandia ran between Helsinki and Stockholm. And she had a sister ship called the Nordia that went into service the next year. Uh, so people see that there's they they kind of have proof of concept. They they realize that this is a this is a thing that people want. People are paying for this even on these maybe not very nice converted vessels. How much would they pay? How many people could we get if we start accommodating their needs actually um with these purpose-built ferries? Uh so originally the routes they stopped during the winter due to, you know, winter on the Baltic, not yeah, a yeah, great time to sail. Great. Uh, But, you know, as things progress, as engine technology gets better, they get more powerful, the vessels get bigger. Uh, There's just more and more advances here. They realize that, yeah, we we could do this year round. Why miss out on all of this potential income? I feel like that's like the logical conclusion of this. Uh, That's where you end up, right? Is Mm -hmm. is that you operate year round. Yeah, yeah, for sure. These ferries were were a pretty big factor in helping to grow the tourism industry in the Baltic. Um, Mm -hmm. Talking about, you know, sort of intra- baltic tourism you know now if you live in say you live in finland and you want to take the family to sweden great you can take your car now and it's super easy that's interesting i I don't know the full timeline of like european union type stuff but this is as you're seeing closer relations between all these countries and an opening up of borders it all kind of goes together Mm -hmm. that it it helps that kind of stuff so yeah that that becomes more easy um it's just it's it's pretty cheap and pretty economical to do it. You know, in addition to the tourism, like you just referred to, a lot of families in these places, they've got these sort of, you know, transnational crossing border family mm. groups. You know, a lot of a lot of people from Finland are working in Sweden. The border, it's not that it's non-existent, but it's, it's not very firm. It's not very divisive here. You've right. got people, you know, crossing for various reasons. So in the 1970s, the popularity of these ferries got more widespread, you know, to kind of some different sectors of society. You had businesses looking to use these for things like conferences. Yeah, that was really interesting. I um, watched a few documentaries about the Estonia, and that was one of the things that one of the guys was on there talking about that they weren't even there to go anywhere. They were like on a round trip, and it was Mm -hmm. just to have like a conference. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting way to do that. Yeah, we saw that. We saw similar things with the Neuronic uh, with the uh, the Northern Navigation Company and how that that was a a feature of these, you know, you'd have your company, you'd have your employees and their families come on this outing for you know a weekend or a week or whatever, kind of a different experience than you know sitting in sitting in a stuffy conference room somewhere. Right. With this growing sort of business use of them, ferry companies would either refit existing ferries with conference facilities, and obviously as they're building new ferries, that's something that they're incorporating into the design. Because, again, it's just another revenue stream that they can access. Right. Uh, also, often there were lower prices than renting a facility on shore. Uh, huh. Plus, you get a sea adventure. 
I guess they figure that at that point, like you're a captive audience and you're going to go spend money in the bar or you're going to go to the casino. You're going to go spend money. It's like kind of the idea of like how the ticket to get to a baseball game isn't that much, but Mm -hmm. the hot dog $7 and the beer $12. Like it's the same thing, right? Get them on the boat and then they're stuck here to spend money. In the 1980s, uh, ferries got, you know, even more diverse with what they had. Things like restaurants and shops, you know, some of them, you know, they've, they've got basically the things you'd expect to see in like a shopping mall. Yeah, one of the points they made in one of the docs that I watched um, was talking about like the, how big of a business the duty free shop was because they were always going between different countries. So, right, like the duty free um, sale of like liquor and cigarettes and things like that was hu- like a huge business for some mm-hmm. of these ferries. Right. Um, yeah. So you've got that aspect of it. Uh, you've got the fact that you know some some of the stuff on these ships, whether it's shops or restaurants or whatever, you know, some of it is rivaling or you know, maybe surpassing the stuff that is on shore on either side. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, they're kind of an inherent draw, like you said, not even necessarily for travel purposes, but just because of all of the stuff that they have. Just to get a sense for the growth of this trade, in 1960, an estimated 500,000 passengers traveled between Sweden and Finland. In 1994, the year that our story, our main story takes place, uh, that number was up to 6 million. Mm-hmm. So over the decades, you just see an increasing demand for this. You know, as the accommodations go up, more people see that this is a cool, viable thing to do, and obviously, it just kind of feeds off of each other there. Yeah, and I think like, that's something important to keep in mind as we talk about this. Like, you know, some of these stories we tell, like, like take the duck boats, for example. Like, that's just like a unique little oddity for most mm-hmm. people. Like, I think a lot of people are aware of them, but it's not like part of the culture of America necessarily. This is kind of becoming ingrained in a lot of the Baltic societies. Like, this is like a common thing that people do. Everyone's been on one, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's it's definitely like when this happens, like, I think there's a lot of people that think like, well, that could have been me. I've been on right. that boat or I've been on a boat that's similar. So, it's a little bit, you know, more of a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point I hadn't really thought of. But yeah, it, there is a bit more ubiquity in the experience of even if maybe you don't use the ferry consistently, you know, maybe your dad does, maybe your uncle mm. does, maybe your brother does. Right. Um, so yeah, that's that's a really good point. Uh, so over that span of time from 1960 to 1990, about 50 ferries were constructed explicitly for the purpose of this passenger travel. And the average time of service for each ship was seven years. The Great Lakes would like to have a word about <laughs> the longevity of vessels. It's not even broken in yet at seven years on the Great Lakes. Ask yeah, the, the uh, Arthur the pit- Anderson. Yeah, the paint's not dry yet. Um, yeah, I mean, tr- truly amazing to see the differences here. Obviously, the environment's being different, but also like the stuff we just talked about. You know, if you if you've made the coolest, newest ferry with all the the newest, most interesting stuff, with the way that culture and entertainment changes, that ship's probably outdated in five years. Um, right. Now, now the other guys have something cooler. They have the IMAX theater instead of just the movie theater. <laughs> We spent some time just now talking about passengers, but let's remember one of the main purposes of a row vessel is the other stuff that you can carry on board. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that cargo, a lot of that cargo being stuff that you can, you know, roll on, and if everything goes right, roll off. The roll on is more of a given. The roll off can be in question, can't it? It's like the rescue thing. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. It's very much the same. <laughs> you have to roll on, but you don't have to roll off. Uh, so to get cargo on these vessels, obviously, you need doors. Uh, I just want to say, I think you may have just created our first sticker or coffee mug right there. Yes, that's the idea. 
getting into year two, we need to diversify. I like that. <laughs> so as we mentioned, you know, in this case, we're dealing with two doors. Just to sort of review for anyone who maybe hasn't listened to our previous episodes about Roro Fairies or, or doesn't know or have any idea what we're really talking about here, Roro Fairies are pretty infamous for not just sinking, but sinking very, very fast and with a very high percentage of casualties. It's sort of the perfect storm scenario because if it fails, it fails quickly. And by their nature, they're packed full of people. Mm -hmm. And it's also people who are only on this vessel for a couple hours. How much mm -hmm. attention are you going to pay mm -hmm. to all the emergency things when you're like, well, I'm only on here for five hours. Mm -hmm. It's not like a five-day cruise where like, you know, you're, you're going to get familiar with the layout of the vessel and know your way around. Mm -hmm. There's um, a lot of factors here. In a previous episode, I believe it was, I, I believe it was Robo Fairies that you compared to, you, you almost discussed them more like you would a plane crash than, yeah, yep, than a typical yep. uh, shipwreck. You know, a lot of the times, you know, when a problem is noticed with a ship, maybe it takes a little while for that problem to become a fatal problem. Or once once that does occur, you have some time for the kind of the search and rescue efforts, um, you know, mm -hmm. getting to lifeboats and, and things like that. Not to give away too much here, but it's like we were talking about some before we recorded, like this vessel is doomed the moment it leaves port. Mm -hmm. There's no human error necessarily involved. That right. See in some stories, we'll we'll be dealing with something that is more of just an inherent flaw to the vessel. Um, right. We will, however, see some stories that might lead us to to think that maybe there is some human error we mm -hmm. can assign. But as you said, once this thing leaves port, this, this is, is always going to. This happen. is what's going to happen. So yeah, of interest to us here is the bow door. Like I mentioned before, these bow doors are really interesting. On these ferries, they come in two main varieties. The first variety that we'll talk about here is a pair of clam doors. Mm -hmm. So these are hinged at the sides of the vessel, and they open to the side. If you want to imagine like a, I don't know, the, the doors to like a storm cellar or something. Um, right. You know, they have the, the opening in the middle, and they open with the hinges on the side. The other type of door, and this is the type of door we'll be focusing our story on, is the visor-style door. So rather than being hinged on the sides of the bow... The visor's hinged at the upper deck, and it opens upward. So you've got basically the the bow of this ship sort of opening up, and it has like a mouth for cars um, <laughs> to gobble up. So those are those are the two varieties we're talking about here. The visor was the more popular style in the earlier ferries, you know, from from the 1960s. It's a simpler design. Mm -hmm. There's you know not as many I guess interlocking pieces that you need, so it was just seen as easier. Most of these fairies have the visor style door. It just seems like the design that makes like the most sense when you're designing it, right? Like without putting too much thought into it. You're like, oh yeah, it just flips up and you go in. I mean, it is a classic example of like the easiest one might be the easiest for a reason, and it might right. not be the best solution to the problem. So the disadvantage of the visor that will rear its head multiple times over the, the following decades is that the two main pieces of the mechanism, the, the visor and then the ramp itself, the loading ramp, they're mechanically linked. So as, as the visor comes up, you know, the ramp is coming out also. Right. Um, to me, it sounded like all of them were like that. There may have been some where they were more independent, but in, in the majority of these, they're linked together. So if there's a problem with the visor, there's also a problem with the ramp and you know, right. vice versa. 
it doesn't you know sound necessarily like an inherent disadvantage like it didn't to me when i was doing the reading the the style of this this visor but it definitely is and it will be very important to our story <laughs> um a term that we might be using quite a bit here is the term c load so we'll be mm-hmm. using that term pretty frequently during the episode c load refers to basically the force that's exerted by the water on the ship itself right um, just waves hitting the ship in this case we're focused on the sea load exerted on the bow door because that's obviously what's taking the brunt of the the force when you're sailing into the waves so with the clam doors the sea load is absorbed more into the structure of the ship if you think about these doors they open outward and they're on the sides so when they're closed if everything is locked up and secured tight waves hitting the door all that does is basically push it further closed like it, it's right. not it's not really causing a problem because they're in the position they need to be in and the waves are just keeping them there. The visor, however, has a problem because it opens vertically at the bottom. That's where the gap is. Obviously, it's designed to not be a, a very big gap, but that's going to kind of be your weak spot. And that's the spot that's taking most of the force of these waves. Right. You're literally plowing into the wave with the, mm-hmm. that door. Exactly. So the sea load hitting the bow of the ship at the right angle and with enough strength is going to force the visor open just by nature of its design. You know, if theoretically speaking, this visor gets forced open, if there's no watertight door aft of that visor and the ramp mechanism, there's absolutely nothing stopping water from entering the vessel. In um, one big open space like a car deck. Yeah, <laughs> which... you. I mean, like I the comparison I mentioned before, you now have this just big open mouth on the front of your ship guzzling water. Then we get the free surface effect, our old friend, and we all know what happens then. Right. So this connects back to something we've talked about before. One of the reasons these railroad ferries sink so fast is because of this big open car deck that isn't Mm -hmm. subdivided you know you don't have like the watertight bulkheads and compartmentalization you might have on a different type of vessel once water is in it's in and it's going everywhere there's no way to really seal it off or compartmentalize anything Mm -hmm. that's why these things sink so fast once they start taking water it just gets faster and faster and faster until they sink which doesn't take very long (laughs) So let's talk about some previous incidents leading up to the one that we'll be focused on in this episode. So previous Baltic ferry accidents involving bow doors. That sounds like the most specific Wikipedia article ever. Yes. The (laughs) depths of Wikipedia uh, Twitter account. So December 1973, the Visby, a Swedish passenger ferry, encountered heavy waves that forced the bow visor open. But this was noticed pretty quickly, and the ship was turned around, and they reached Nynesham safely. It was found that the issue was the visor locking devices, which were too weak for the demands of the route. Sea load is something that can be calculated with some degree of, of certainty, right. you know, on a certain stretch of water in certain conditions. That's, there's a mathematical way to calculate that. And it was found that these just weren't up to the task of this, mm-hmm. And it was really only a matter of time until they encountered heavy enough seas to break them open. Uh, so these were replaced with heavier mechanisms that could handle the expected sea loads. So the most important element of that first little anecdote is that it was noticed quickly. Right. And the ship was turned around. And really not that big of a deal. There was a problem. Because it was noticed quickly. They noticed the problem quickly, and they took steps to 
keep the problem from getting worse. It'd be a shame if there was something preventing you from noticing the problem. Exactly. If this is something you see quick, not that big of a deal. Uh, In January 1974, the Stena Sailor, a cargo ferry, slowed down when it encountered heavy seas to prevent something like that from happening. You know, this is a problem that they're more or less aware of. If you're sailing full speed in heavy seas, it's going to increase the sea load and you're going to have problems with your door. Right. Um, So they slowed their speed, but the visor locks still failed. The ramp, however, did remain in place and the ship was able to reach shelter safely. So that's one of the things here. You know, if you're having a problem with this visor, it can cause problems with the ramp. Uh, You know, it can pull the ramp out of place. The ramp is stopping some of that water, too. From what I was reading, I I don't know that the ramp itself was fully watertight, but it was definitely better than not having it there. Right. So, yeah, that's kind of an open question for me. Maybe I can answer it before our next episode. Uh, So an investigation into this Stena Sailor uh, episode, uh, it showed that nearly all of these locking devices were too weak. That's pretty crazy. Which makes sense. I mean, these things are being produced really quickly. They're being produced along certain patterns. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're focused on how to make the ship a better experience overall, the visor door lock is probably not tops on your list of like things you need to improve. Right. So in May 1974, the passenger ferry Svea Star encountered heavy weather, causing its visor to lift while underway. Water collected in the visor, but again, ramp stayed in place and it remained closed. No bigger issues here. Water is not getting onto the car deck. Water is not getting in the vessel itself. Not that big of a deal. They returned to port safely. So at this point, we can see that, you know, an issue with the visor doesn't automatically lead to a catastrophe. Right. As long as the ramp stays closed, you you could still be okay, at least enough to get back to safety. Yeah, it kind of um, continues the uh, airliner metaphor that, like, you know, you can have serious problems, but if they're noticed and handled correctly, it's preventable. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, December 1975, the passenger ferry Wellamo, or Velamo, I don't know, encountered a storm on its route from Helsinki to Stockholm. The officer of the watch noticed that the visor had lifted, uh, so he quickly wakes up the ship's master. They do an inspection. They illuminate it with one of the, the signal lamps. You know, several minutes later, they see this visor lift again. They, you know, they see the activity repeated, and they make the decision to reduce their speed to just three knots and return to Helsinki. I just want to say, like, watching that lift up has to be a bad feeling. Mm-hmm. Like, that has to be, like, a, a real, like, oh, no type moment. Exactly. Because, as we've mentioned, these things, once they start taking water, you don't have very long. If you see that happen, you have to start wondering, is this the first time that's happened? Right. Or, or has it been this doing like this? Time? Yeah, yeah, has it been doing this for, like, 10 minutes? So, yeah, they they basically slow to a crawl and they make it back to Helsinki. So you see the standard practice here is to just slow down. Kind of logical. If you slow down, you're taking less water, you know, if mm. water's getting into the ship. And you can you can make it back okay, as long as you know that this has happened. So after inspection in port, the visor was repaired and reinforced. This reinforcement was also uh, undertaken on two sister ships. That's and- good. It's good to see that there's like some, you know, kind of system-wide updates going on once we know something's a problem. Yeah, you almost get the sense that like there's there's an awareness that this is a widespread problem, but it always seems to be too localized. You know, when one of these mm-hmm. locks fails, they fix her sister ships, but there doesn't seem to be any sort of investigation to the other vessels in the fleet, you know, if they weren't, mm-hmm. you know, sister or near sister ships to this one. 
1981, Finlandia, also on the Helsinki to Stockholm route, encountered storms but reached port without apparent incident. The next day, however, it was found that the bow visor couldn't be opened and that there was pretty extensive damage to the port side mechanism. So they tried to open this thing and it stuck. Hmm. Um, and they realized that the port side has been, you know, sort of dented and warped. And uh, two of the locking bars had broken. The visor itself had sort of lifted and shifted over to starboard. So it was sort of off track and it obviously wouldn't be able to operate properly. Right. Uh, so to solve this, they added locating horns to both sides um, and then other sides of, or other parts of the structure were also strengthened. They did these changes to a sister ship as well. Nice. This is a long list. We're about halfway through. May 1982. The cargo and passenger ferry Saga Star suffered a hinge failure on the bow visor while preparing for departure. This is an interesting part because this isn't the lock mechanism that's failing you know, mm-hmm. at sea. This is while they're still in port. And this is a you know, normal visor operation going on here. The starboard hinge failed, causing the whole visor to fall down. Yeah, that's not great. The funny part here is the ship was allowed to sail without a visor for a few trips before repairs could be done. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you're aware that it's not there, you can be like hyper vigilant about, you know, water and stuff. Right. And it kind of highlights the the idea that, you know, the, the visor and ramp are interconnected. But as long as the visor is sort of either, you know, fixed after it falls off or it's taken off in some sort of controlled environment, the ramp itself can be okay. It's sort of just like the hood is sort of a variable that has to be accounted for one way or the other. Mm-hmm. As long as you know like the status of it, you're okay. Right. October 1984, the Viking Saga passenger ferry took severe damage to its visor while running at 16 knots in heavy seas. A large part of the visor was dented, and some of the locating and locking mechanisms were damaged. Um, I think that's a good reminder of how powerful these storms are. Mm-hmm. It's denting these large pieces of metal. Mm-hmm. That's some power. It really is. So the affected areas on this ship, they were renewed, they were fixed but not reinforced any further. This was, this was just kind of seen as, hey, this is normal expected damage. You know, it was a storm. It was heavy waves. This is going to happen sometimes. Right. So not really seen as a problem, just something to be dealt Aware with. Of. Also, October 1984, the Stena Jutlandica suffered a failure of her visor hinges during opening that was attributed to cracks in the welding of the hinges. The passenger ferry Ilyich we finally have a new route here, was traveling from Leningrad to Stockholm in December of 1984, uh, when one visor hinge failed, along with all of the locking mechanisms. That doesn't sound good. So, one hinge fails, it breaks, so now the visor is secured by only one hinge. Hmm. So, whereas before it could only go up and down, now it can go anywhere it wants to go. That seems worse than it just falling off and beating right. around. And- You'd almost rather just rip the Band-Aid off, and you're mm-hmm. probably in a better situation. So yeah, this is sort of just, you know, it's a, it's a pretty heavy piece of metal, but it's it has a relatively free range of movement, you know, up, down, side to side. The situation is seen from the bridge, speed is reduced, and the ship made it to safer waters. This same ship had another issue in September of 86 with her locking bolts that led to some further reinforcements. Again... Running theme here, if the problem is noticed, if everyone's aware of the problem, it can be dealt with without hundreds of people dying. November 1985, the Mariella, a passenger ferry that we'll see again in our story, 
suffered a failure of her visor locking devices and her hydraulic actuators, forcing That's open the good. visor during a voyage from Helsinki to Stockholm. I don't like that the failure results in it being forced open. If anything, wouldn't you want it forced closed? You'd rather have it stuck closed, I would think, than and stuck open. And deal with open. that when you get into port. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she was traveling at about 13 knots when this happened. Again, speed was reduced, and that was basically the end of it. I feel like speed is just the common variable that comes up in almost all... It's not in every story, but in most of these stories. Mm-hmm. They're moving at 13, 14, 15, 16 knots in, a, in weather when this mm-hmm. happens. Right. There was a temporary repair followed by some more thorough reinforcements of the lower visor locks and the areas below the upper locks. In the winter of 1986 to 1987... The Tor Hollandia had suffered a failure of her bottom lock and one of the hinges. Same story. This was seen from the bridge, speed reduced, etc., etc. So in the reports, there is one description of an accident with clam doors. So that, mm-hmm. other, that other door variant that opens uh, from the sides. This was the Finn Hansa. Uh, in January 1977, she lost her clam doors while underway. Thing is here, they hadn't been properly secured. And so they were observed to be about a half meter open. They That's stopped, kind of big. Yeah, they, they stopped to secure them, but by that time they'd already been torn off. So this uh, wasn't a mechanical failure. Really haven't seen any actual mechanical issues with the clam doors. This one single recorded incident is because of a direct human error of not mm-hmm. being locked properly. One final visor incident that we'll talk about before we get to the Estonia herself. This one takes place in January 1993, and it involves a near sister ship of the Estonia called the Diana 2. So at this time, there were some storms in the southern Baltic where Diana 2 ran a chartered route from Trelleborg, Sweden to Rostock, Germany. Mm-hmm. On January 14th, a Polish Roro, the Jan Havelius, had capsized, killing 65 passengers and crew with only nine survivors. Um, that one's worthy of its own episode, uh, especially because we haven't been to Poland yet. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't want to give too many details there. We'll come back to the Jan Havelius. Diana, too, apparently hadn't suffered from the same storm that took down the Havelius until there was an inspection on the morning of January 16th. So this revealed some damage to the visor lock. The starboard locking device lug was totally gone. Mm-hmm. The bottom lock was bent. The welds on the bottom lock were cracked. And the port side locking device lug was bent and its weld was cracked. That's just crazy that this is only found because of like an inspection. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's amazing to see like how widespread this is. Like almost every piece of this mechanism is broken. It just happened to not come off. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, So these are repaired back to their original standard because this was kind of like that one we just talked about, seen as understandable wear and tear. No wider changes were made to the ship or to her Um, near sister ship, the Estonia. This just sort of reminds me of, I believe it was one of the earlier 737 aircraft that had like a stress fracture issue from like the repeated compression and decompression cycles. Mm-hmm. And a lot of like all of the individual airlines were fixing the same problem, but no one was talking about it. So everyone right. assumed it was normal wear and tear mm-hmm. until it like one of the aircraft act literally lost a piece of its roof, like in mm-hmm. flight. And it was they kind of figured out that this isn't just like a normal thing. Like there is an actual industry wide issue. This kind of reminds mm-hmm. me of that, that, Everyone's kind of doing their own thing, fixing their own problems, but no one's talking about how this is like industry wide. 
Yeah, exactly. That's a perfect parallel to this, where it's the same problem over and over again. Like, that was probably a really boring list of incidents I just read. And that was kind of the point. That was a rhetorical inclusion of boredom here in this episode, (laughs) is the fact that this is the same problem over and over again. And this is over the span of decades. And widespread changes aren't really instituted. Like, no one's looking at the fact that, hey, maybe this visor system is just a bad idea. Um, We have none of these same issues with the clam doors, yet we just repeatedly are doing the same thing with these visors. This leads us to the main focus of our two-part episode here. And this is September 28th, 1994. Estonia was on her way from Tallinn to Stockholm. Uh, In the early morning of September 28th, conditions were described as rough but not extreme The weather forecast for the time around midnight predicted significant wave height of 2.5 to 3.5 meters. In reality, it ended up being about a meter higher, but Mm -hmm. it's kind of determined that that wouldn't have really affected anything. Um, It's still within the realm of normalcy for these operators, like we've talked about before. These are theoretically designed to operate in rough conditions, and this is within that range. Yeah, everything I've read and um, watched basically said that you know, it would have been uncomfortable for the crew, yes, mm-hmm. but like you expect to work in these kind of conditions for this time of year and in this, you know, this place. Right. And then actually one thing I had to look up while I was doing the research for this was that term significant wave height. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not one I was familiar with, you know, despite all the, the reading we've done for, for this. Uh, significant wave height refers to the average wave height from trough to crest of the highest one third of the waves. So the average of the big waves, essentially. Basically, yeah, the the average of of the bigger ones you're going to encounter. So not covering, you know, the massive, you know, rogue waves that kind of more or less unpredictable, but kind mm-hmm. of saying what's what's the upper level of these waves you're going to encounter. Loading had finished up in the late afternoon the previous day. The car deck was described as being loaded with trucks almost bumper to bumper on the aft and mid parts. Mm -hmm. Uh, Small trucks and cars were loaded in the forward portions of the vessel. Potentially big issue here, loading had apparently not taken into account the athwart ship's weight disposition, or just Hmm. the the side-to-side balance on the ship of how this weight is distributed. That Uh, could be important if, you know, like, water got onto that deck. Probably. And even if water doesn't get on the deck, it's it's causing some problems already. You know, you work in trucking. Anyone who's ever loaded a, a moving truck, you know, like a U-Haul, knows that, you know, weight distribution is, is an important thing. You mm-hmm. want to make sure that everything's, you know, spaced out evenly. You don't want too much on one side of anything. So when the ship left Tallinn, the port side healing tank was almost full and the starboard side was totally empty. I don't know if that's how you want to start your voyage. Right. Like, sure. Like, that may end up being something you have to do because you're reacting to sea conditions. But to leave port this way is obviously indicative that the ship isn't loaded very well. Yeah. Like you said, like if you end up coming into port that way, it's one thing. But you would think you'd be like, hey, we need to fix this before we leave. Right. It kind of seems like, obviously, the quicker way to do this, but may- maybe not the best one for, for most situations. Because, again, you, you have nowhere to go from there. Right. And like you've kind of lost the ability to adjust in transit now. You've already mm-hmm. kind of locked into doing it this way. Yeah. You've lost all that flexibility of, you know, writing yourself in some situation that you might encounter. You have really nowhere to go there. So she left Tallinn at 7.15 p.m. 
And as she entered the open sea, she was moving at about 19 knots. That's pretty quick. Yeah, so this is like the fastest speed we've encountered of any of these stories so far. She was sailing with a list of about one degree to starboard. So a sustained list that she's leaving port with. We've already talked about her issues with her healing tanks. So the weather got worse during the night. And with a scheduled course change around 1225 on the 28th, Estonia was sailing more directly into these increasingly large waves. Mm -hmm. So her speed decreased to around 14 knots. And there was an increase in rolling and pitching. Uh, she had extended her stabilizing fins just after that course change waypoint. Mm -hmm. So she knows that she's encountering rough seas. She has some tools to deal with that. Around five minutes to one in the morning, the able seaman of the watch was conducting his rounds near the forward ramp. Mm -hmm. At this point, he heard a, quote, sharp metallic bang from the bow area. This coincided with a heavy upward acceleration that nearly made him fall. So, obviously, sensing the possibility of something abnormal, he alerted the bridge to what he had heard and felt. So he hung around the forward ramp for several more minutes to see if that sound repeated, see if he could notice anything. Hearing nothing, he just continues on with his rounds to decks one and zero. Aside from the one large bang and the impact, nothing else out of the ordinary was noticed. Hmm. Starting just after one o'clock, passengers near the bow of the ship reported hearing a series of loud, metallic bangs, some of which were associated with vibrations felt through the hull. I saw a few things about this in some of the stuff that I watched. And actually, one of the passengers in one of the bar areas, he had gone through the officer training to work for the ferry companies in mm -hmm. uh, Sweden. Mm -hmm. And he had decided afterwards that he wanted to be a lawyer instead, but he had been trained in this. Mm -hmm. And he had thought early on, like, wow, we're moving really quick for the conditions. Oh, like, this isn't yeah. what I remember learning. And then when he started hearing these bangs, he knew pretty quickly that's not the normal shifting <laughs> of the ship. Like, something is wrong. Right. And he actually gets his buddy and says, we need to go. Like, we need to get out of where we are and get mm -hmm. to, like, the, the top decks. Right. So, like, that little, that random bit of training in his life ends up saving his life in this scenario. Mm -hmm. It's pretty crazy. Very beneficial to have that knowledge there of what is to be expected in this situation. Mm -hmm. Some passengers reported seeing water on deck one and feeling a slight list. So, kind of like what we said with this guy here, more passengers begin sensing that something is wrong. They start leaving their cabins. They know that this is increasingly abnormal. Because, like we said, a lot of these people probably have experience on these things already. They do know what to expect. Mm -hmm. um, and this isn't it. Something I did want to mention, just to account for the speed. You know, we mentioned that she's moving faster than we might expect. There was a delay in her leaving Tallinn. I don't know for sure that that played a role in her keeping her speed up, trying to stay on schedule. But that was something that had happened. This list that passengers are noticing, it develops pretty quickly to about 15 degrees to starboard. Um, That's a lot. Yeah. And it's nothing compared to what we're about to get to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, 15 degrees is a very, very serious starboard list. Uh, particularly if you're not used to being on a vessel like this. Like, this would be mm. very disorienting. This would be very uncomfortable. Right. When we talked about the Scandies Rose, you know, the one that developed all that ice and capsized in mm. the Bering Sea, we were talking about, you know, that ship. It was truly alarming when that ship got to, I believe it was a 20 degree list. Mm -hmm. Um you know, it was it was basically game over at that point. And we've got a 15 degree list here on a ship of this size. 
So the ship was slowed to idling speed as the captain and crew tried to assess the situation. They don't really know what's going on here, why they're having such a problem. Or like we've seen before in these stories, very often we see this decision made to turn into the waves in a situation where there's a risk of capsizing or if engine power has been lost. You know, At very least, if you can stay with the waves at your bow, you can lower the risk of capsizing. Mm-hmm. Normally, that's the absolute right thing to do. After the turn to port, the list increased to between 20 and 30 degrees. In the report, there's a visual representation with like a horizon line and then the ship tilting. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I guess for me, a 30 degree list, because it's, I guess because it's less than 45, like mentally, it seems like not that bad. But then like <laughs> you see it visually represented and you're like, oh my God, like you, like you wouldn't even be able to stand up. Yeah, no, it sounds bad. <laughs> so as this list continues to grow, the engines start to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're starting to fail because they're losing the pressure from the oil. You know, these, these right. engines aren't designed to work sideways or upside down. That um, reminds me of El Faro and a lot of that stuff that they unintentionally kind of turn the wrong direction and take they, they produce mm-hmm. their own oil pressure mm-hmm. because of a list. It's a great example of how these problems on board a ship really do compound each other. You know, mm-hmm. when you're talking about this list, it's not just the risk of the ship capsizing itself, you know, the, the physics of that, but past a certain point, you're going to lose your engines. Right. So the port engines failed first uh, as, as they lost that oil pressure. The starboard engines failed around 1.20 a.m. This um, is all happening really fast. It is. If you're, if you're keeping track of the time, it was just... Just the, after one o'clock when we're hearing the bangs. Yeah, so the that first bang was heard by the, the watchman about five minutes before one o'clock. Passengers start to notice it in the minutes after one o'clock. Mm-hmm. And now we have total engine failure by one twenty. And and not to mention an ever increasing list. Mm-hmm. And that's where like the guy that was talking about how, you know, he left when he heard the bangs and he got out. He's one of the only people that did, because you mm-hmm. think about it. It takes a few minutes to get to the top decks. Um, you know, if he left at 105 and took 10 minutes, it's 115, and then mm-hmm. the engines are failing at 120. There's not a lot of time to make these decisions. Even yeah. if you decide to go back to your cabin to grab something, like you may not make it out of this. Yeah, another great example. Never do that. Yeah, just just go to where you need to go. Never go back to grab stuff. So th- those engines have failed at 120. Those are followed by the main generators about five minutes later. Estonia is totally dead in the water. At this point, Estonia is drifting mm-hmm. uh, with a list of about 40 degrees. Not not great. With her starboard side to the wave. So you can see this represented on a, on maps that really show her route and then where she is as she starts to drift. Mm-hmm. As this list is increasing, the flooding is progressing too. Windows at the aft portion of the ship are starting to break. Mm-hmm. Um, as more of those break, more and more water is coming into the ship. It's that... Feedback, the typical thing the that we feedback see. loop that we always talk about the more water you take the more water you're going to the, the empress of ireland with the open hatch or the open portal covers and things like that exactly it just becomes yeah like you said it's a feedback loop uh now with a list of around 80 degrees the bridge is becoming flooded this is just before 1 30 a.m so over the span of about half an hour we've gone from things proceeding more or less normally to the bridge is underwater. It's truly amazing how fast this is developing. Yes. Um, I mean, yeah, you are talking 30 minutes. And 30 minutes that probably don't seem like even that much time. No. In the moment. Around this time, the emergency generator failed. 
but there was still a small amount of functional lighting on board. So we don't mm-hmm. quite have the full pitch blackness that we have in some of these stories, which is a small comfort in this situation. At this point, the vessel is well and truly sinking, um, and it's very apparent. Uh, it's sinking stern first with a list of about 115 degrees mm. around 1.40 a.m. That's how it's described in the report. At this point, the concept of a list really becomes irrelevant. Um, yeah. It's closer to being fully capsized than it is to being fully upright. I thought that was interesting. A couple of the survivor accounts of people who were in some of the bars and the restaurants from this thing. It sounds like the scene in the Poseidon Adventure. Mm-hmm. It, it literally sounds like that, that there's people holding on to tables that are bolted into the ground, but there's dishes and glasses mm-hmm. and people flying through the air and being tossed down. Like it, it, I, like we always say, it sounds like something from a movie. It doesn't seem mm-hmm. real, almost, some of the accounts that you're hearing. One thing we'll get into in part two that you mentioned, that you mentioned, like, tables being bolted down. We'll talk about not enough things being bolted down. Right. Um, yeah, I'm very interested to talk about some of the... Um, in, in any disaster situation, I always think, like, the moment from beginning to, like, the com- the ending of the event are, like, the the most interesting part. Mm-hmm. As far as how people react to it. Um, so like this 30 minute window of like decisions that people make and everything and all this is so fascinating about who, who survives, who doesn't. And, you know, some of the things that those people are seeing, because it's such a unique experience mm-hmm. to have made it through something like this. Right. So by 1.50 a.m. on the 28th, Estonia was completely underwater. That's crazy. An hour. Yeah. Essentially, in the span of an hour, you go from running full speed to being completely underwater. It's truly amazing. It is. Um, And that's where we're going to cut it for today. This makes it very obvious why we had to make this a two-part episode. (laughs) For sure. Yeah, this is a good background episode. I mean, I think we're kind of building the case in this this one. We have a lot more to talk about in terms of details, in terms of how this developed. Um, We're kind of going to backtrack a little bit and see what was actually happening during some of these things that the crew and the passengers were experiencing. And we'll continue that discussion next week. Yeah. Um, So thank you for listening to part one. And we hope that you'll join us for part two, which really is like the interesting part. So yeah, please come back for part two. Yeah, for sure. It's been fun. I'm uh, looking forward to doing that part. All right. In the meantime, take care and we will talk to you next week.